Hi there. Welcome to season three of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback on the show, so please go to BertScholl.com and you can submit your feedback by clicking the contact link and filling out the form at the bottom. Thank you so much. I super appreciate every one of you. And make sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. Today's guest is Kara Scrubis. Kara was diagnosed when she was 18 years old. She's now 19. She's a dancer, an artist, an animal lover, and a pediatric cancer advocate. She lives in New York State, and she's a double major in psychology and health and human services. Kara aspires to work in child life to support those going through rough times. I spent most of this conversation blown away by what Kara has been through and fascinated by the brilliant technology available in the world of prosthetics. As you listen, you'll notice some static in the beginning of the podcast. Once I noticed it, I corrected it. My apologies for not noticing it sooner. So here we go. Kara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. You're so welcome. Will you tell everybody what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with and how old you were? Yeah, so I'm currently 19 years old. I was 18. It was January 2020, so a little over a year ago. I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in my left tibia. I underwent nine months of chemotherapy as well as a left above the knee amputation. And now I'm doing eight months of immunotherapy. All right. So you were diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Yes. And what exactly is that for all the listeners? It's a rare pediatric bone cancer. So there's like different types of sarcomas. This one's typically a tumor in the bone. So Usually chemo can kill some of the tumor, but patients usually undergo either limb salvage surgery where they take out bone and replace it with titanium parts, or they can have rotation plasty, which is just removing the bone with the tumor and putting your foot where your knee would be, or you could have an amputation. Yeah, I heard about that. I have a uh, friend who was diagnosed with, I'm not going to remember, he was in the first season. His name's Joe Schill. And his whole leg is locked up and doesn't, you know, just pretty much straight and doesn't work due to the radiation. And they talked about the possibility. He told me about a person who had the lower half of their leg put where the upper half of their leg was and just, yeah, it is phenomenal. Yeah. What surgeons can do these days. (laughs) Yeah. So was there a stage that they diagnosed you with? Osteosarcoma typically doesn't have stages unless it like metastasizes to your lungs, which it typically does. Mm. So... We're kind of unsure if it's in my lungs right now. I have like nodules in my lungs, but if you took any person off of the street, they most likely would have nodules in their lungs. So that's why I'm doing immunotherapy to hopefully prevent anything from growing in my lungs. And for now, we're just waiting and watching and hoping to not do surgery. Yeah, for sure. I remember speaking with my oncologist the first time I was diagnosed and as the post-treatment scans, you know, there's no evidence of disease. I'm getting scans. And I said, you know, so how long do you scan me? And he said, well, for this many years, then we stop. I'm like, well, what if, like, what do you mean? <laughs> You're going to stop? Yeah. He's like, Bert, if we scanned everybody three to four times a year, he's like, you would find things like 
all kinds of things grow in the body and then the body takes care of it and gets rid of it. Yeah. And it's, it's part of the process. So it seems kind of a perhaps somewhat reassuring to be like, okay, so these can be completely normal. Yeah. They may not be Mets. So how did you find out that you had osteosarcoma? Yeah. So I've done pre-professional ballet since I was three years old. I started off my freshman year at the University of Buffalo as a dance major around October. I woke up one morning and just had extreme knee pain and it felt like I couldn't even walk. And I went to an urgent care and said I just sprained my knee or whatever and went through about like three months of seeing different doctors, misdiagnosis, thought it was bursitis, thought it was a blood clot. There was a, like a pretty obvious area where the tumor was, where it was raised, it was hot, it was swollen, which made us think blood clot. But after an x-ray and an MRI, it showed a tumor. So you had a raised, hot, and swollen tumor Yes. on your knee. Yeah. And they thought initially it might have been bursitis or a blood clot. Do bursitis and blood clots commonly show up for uh, ballet dancers? Like, did it um, seem like maybe it wasn't that uncommon at first? I think they thought it was uncommon. I mean, me personally, I thought I just was rolling on my knee too much and dance or something. Mm -hmm. I do have a gene mutation for blood clots. It's called MTHFR. So there was question if it would be a blood clot or not, since I'm kind of more prone to them. So that kind of made us lead to thinking it was a blood clot. What kind of scans did you say you received? That, yeah. To find the I tumor? Mean, originally, I got like an ultrasound to look for a blood clot, and that wasn't there. But what showed the tumor was actually an x ray, typically for osteosarcoma, since it's in the bone itself, and then went through an MRI and a biopsy to figure out what it was exactly. And so, would you be willing to paint a picture for us? Like, because here's the thing like, our friend Ren connected you and me on Instagram. Yeah. And she told me that you'd had cancer in your leg and the bottom of it amputated. And so we became Instagram, you know, connect. We became connected through Instagram. And I look and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like this woman's a ballet dancer and she had her leg amputated. Like, I mean, maybe we're not there yet in the conversation, but like I'm trying to imagine like you're sitting in the doctor's office where your parents were there with you. Uh, my mom was. Yeah. And I think my grandparents were there, too, because. I think, like, my mom was kind of expecting something bad, and I wasn't, so okay. I was really thrown off. Yeah, I'll never forget the day my doctor told me that I had rectal cancer. Yeah. I'll never forget that. It was my son's mom and my little four-month-old baby sitting in the doctor's office like, you have cancer. It's like, uh, I think you got the wrong guy. Yeah. <laughs> so they told you you had this sarcoma. Like, what was your first thought? I think... I was in so much pain for so long, so I knew something was wrong. So, like, of course, it was a shock that it was cancer, but a little part of me was relieved to know what was going on and to know that I had all eyes on me now and everyone would be watching me and we'd be figuring out how to get me better. And my mom always talks about me going home that day and just saying, can they just, like, take my leg? Like, can they just cut it off? Because... As much as I wanted to keep dancing, I've had amputee friends. My dad was friends with an amputee, and I remember him from a young age just being able to do whatever he wanted to do. And to me, my health was over my happiness at that point. 
Wow. So from a young age, like you were provided this childhood awareness of like total freedom as an amputee, like how beautiful that that showed up in your life, kind of, you know, yeah, little, 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 uh, providing you something to hang on to that you had no idea was going to matter so much to you. You speak to the relief and like the all eyes on me, as you said, like, so you must have been in a lot of pain. Yeah, I was working like two different jobs and it was on my college break, like it was over Christmas break. So luckily I had some time off from dancing and I felt like I kind of was able to stop at a good point, like in the middle of semesters. But, but yeah, there was a lot of pain. And the thing with osteosarcoma is as soon as you start chemo, your pain should diminish a lot. And it did for me, which helped a lot. I can get the relief when I was diagnosed with rectal cancer, it was stage two T4, which meant it was just like, they couldn't tell if it, if it had reached the lymph nodes. It was like it was like they're giving the lymph the tumor was like giving the lymph nodes a kiss. It was like so close, but you couldn't tell if it got into them. And long story short, by the time I was coming up on my surgery date, I was in so much pain. I was like, "Good, yay! I'm gonna have a colostomy. Wonderful! Like I'm tired of being on morphine and being in pain." And so, yeah, like you'd come to the point you're like if you have to amputate me in my leg and i'm not going to be in pain sweet did they do the chemo before they amputated yeah so typically osteosarcoma patients do around three months of chemo then they go through their surgery and then they do like around six months of chemo and so you had your three months and the pain started to decrease yeah i actually had my tumor was on my tibia and it was pressing on a nerve that gave me a lot of nerve damage in my left foot, as well as I developed three DVTs or blood clots. Um, so I lost all feeling in my foot around like the end of February. So I had stopped walking since February and I received my amputation in April. So I had lost all feeling in my foot. So if I had had rotation plasty where my foot would have been reattached as my knee joint, I wouldn't have been able to move it as well as if I had had limb salvage, I would have spent the rest of my life in a boot and I still wouldn't have gained back the feeling in my foot. So amputation was kind of the clearer choice for me and gave me the best option. Okay, so I got you. So let's break that down. So rotation plasty is where they take your... So you, you said the tumor was in your tibia. So that's in the that's one of the two bones in the lower part of the leg, below the yeah, knee, Yeah, it's right? like right under the knee joint. Okay. And there was a possibility of what, removing that one part and then flipping the leg over and having the ankle joint attached to the femur? Yeah. So typically if your tumor is like in your knee or below your knee, they would cut above the knee joint and then take your foot, flip it around so that your foot would act as a knee joint. So kind of your heel would be your knee. So mm. you'd still wear a prosthetic with it, but you'd be acting as a below the knee amputee. Not that you do have your knee, but you would be able to have knee function. Okay. That is just fascinating. Like, yeah. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Someone was like, wait a second. Why don't we take the ankle and make yeah. that a somewhat knee joint? And then we'll put a prosthetic on the, bottom where the foot was and okay like that would be weird like if i woke up <laughs> <laughs> i 
I mean, I'm, I, someone's listening and they have that right now. And so like, I'm not, you know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, but I'm just like, I'm sure like getting your head around it. Like what? Okay. So, wow. It's like magical and it's also really strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you had the option of that and then you had the, you said versus a boot. Yeah. So for like limb salvage, they would take out the bone that would be infected with osteosarcoma, depending on what the margins were. And usually replacing that with like a titanium rod or just like a new knee, new metal parts. Um, and with that, typically you're never able to fully run again. Some do, but you lose a lot of your mobility and your ability to like bend your knee past 90 degrees. But for me, it would have been not having the feeling in my foot anymore. Um, so I would have been in a boot. Okay. So you'd lose the ability to run. So there wouldn't be a whole lot of leg function. Yeah. You say you'd be in a boot. You mean literally like a boot? I'm not like fully a... following. I get they do the titanium rod where the piece of leg is, the tibia is cut out. They put a titanium rod in there, right? And they can reconstruct the knee. Mm -hmm. And then what's the boot? The boot would probably just be for me since my blood clots like lost all like nerve feeling in my foot. So I would have had to wear like, just like a, like a cast, I guess. Like if you broke your foot or something mm -hmm. just to protect my lower leg from anything since I couldn't feel it. Okay. I'm following now. So you would have no feeling in your leg because of the blood clots. Therefore they'd have to put a boot on your foot to protect it because uh, like for instance, I have neuropathy in my hands and feet. It's very mild, but some folks can have more extreme cases of it. And it arose from the chemotherapy treatments. And mm -hmm. some folks can have more extreme cases of it where like, you know, they can cut their hand or foot and have no idea. Yeah. So basically that boot is, sounds like a, a protective device for you and B, it probably adds to stability, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you can't use the lower half of your foot to, if you can't feel, then you'd have to kind of lock it up because you wouldn't want your ankle just bending all over the foot going all kinds of directions, right? Yeah. Wow, we, this conversation is fascinating. <laughs> I deliberately didn't really take any looks at what kind of cancer you had. I just wanted, yeah. you know, I love coming in fresh and not knowing mm -hmm. because that's how everyone listening right now is coming in. You know, they, they, they may not know at all. They may not have taken the time to look it up. They may have just pressed play. Yeah. So rotation, rotation plasty mm -hmm. or the boot and the limb salvage. Mm -hmm. And option three was what you chose, which was just to amputate. Well, yeah. I say just was to amputate. Yeah. And where did they make the cut? Yeah, so my tumor was in my tibia, so just a little bit below my knee. So there was question whether or not they would go through the knee or above the knee. I'm not sure exactly if I had gotten through the knee how much knee function I would have had, but um, they chose like just above the knee to give me clear margins and make sure they were able to have no evidence of any tumor left in my mm -hmm. leg so that I would have better chance of not relapsing. So I do have like a pretty long residual limb, which is good in many ways. It gives me more stability when using a prosthetic. Um, my 
knee on my prosthetic and my knee on my right leg don't really match up, but it doesn't cause me too many problems. So how do you mean they don't match up? It's like, it's a bigger socket around my residual limb. So my knee's a bit lower on my prosthetic. That makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So your knees don't bend at the same height. Yeah. Can they fix that? (laughs) I still have like a preparatory prosthetic. So once I like graduate to a more advanced leg, they might be able to give me like less of a height difference, but I think they can correct it with like additional surgery, but it's not really causing me any problems. So (laughs) (laughs) you're like, yeah, they could Bert, but I don't want them to. There's no need (laughs) like additional surgeries. No, thank you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've even come to the time I've had a colostomy since 2008 and people have asked me, you know, on this podcast, you know, if you could have the uh, reversal surgery and, you know, if there came a point where they could replace your you know, from the rectum down, would you do it? I'm like, ugh. Yeah. There was a news article on something that said that you can get a leg transplant, but I don't know much about that, so I probably can't speak too much about that, but I, like, people have asked me if you could get, like, a leg transplant, would you do it? I don't think I would. (laughs) Yeah, right, because transplants, as you and I are both speaking of, you know, there's something I know essentially nothing about, but I do know that people take, you know, immunosuppressants to -hmm. keep. And then even before we even get to that part, I'm just like my surgery, like they cut me from my sternum all the way down to my pelvic bone and then rolled me over and cut me from the other side of my pelvic bone up to my sacrum, you know, like the coccyx. Like I, I don't want to do that again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like that was a lot. And I can hear you do not either. Like, oof. So, Okay, so you currently have a temporary prosthetic, mm-hmm. and then they're going to upgrade you. At what point? Yeah. Typically, it depends on like your insurance or your prosthetic company. For me, it's when I outgrow my current prosthetic. So when I show that I'm able to walk with it, and I need something kind of more advanced to like help me not fall down or help me get up hills. So. All right. So, are there different types of prosthetics? Yeah, there is. Based on your needs. So like, okay, Kara's having this issue, but not that issue. So we'll go with this prosthetic instead of that one. Yeah. So when I first met with my my prosthetist, (laughs) (laughs) um, he asked me kind of what I wanted to do and what activities I wanted to get back into. And one of them I said was horseback riding. Mm -hmm. So the temporary prosthetic he gave me, the knee is able to lock. So if I were to get up on a horse right now I would just lock my knee that way the leg wouldn't be like flying all around the place like hitting Mm. the horse and everything there's waterproof legs for swimming there's running legs which maybe you've seen they have like a curved blade which you can't really walk on those because your balance is just kind of off (laughs) so those are typically made for like people who play sports or running. Right. Like we, we see those on like on, on the news and inspiring articles, this super cool looking running prosthetic, but I had no idea that you can't walk on it. Yeah. Or you I mean, could, right? I but think you, you can, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a lot harder too. Because they look super cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are the other ones? They have like, I think 
the more advanced legs, there's different types of knees. So there's something called a microprocessor knee, which is a computerized knee. So right now the knee I have, I have like a standard foot where if you put weight on the heel, the knee locks. And if you put weight on the toe, the knee bends. So if you accidentally put weight on your toe or something, you're bending your leg and you're going to fall. So it wow. takes a lot of mental articulation as well, but a microprocessor knee kind of tries to sense your gait. And the main thing with a microprocessor knee is it senses if you fall. So it tries to stop you from falling and it gives you the ability to walk like kind of down steep hills without falling, especially if you to put your weight on your toes or walking uphill or just doing more active activities. Okay, this is fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So you get to choose the type of prosthetic that's going to most suit your life. And I mean, I can imagine you could be like, okay, well, I'm going to pick up another prosthetic so I can start doing X or Y. Yeah. And I'd like to start running. So I'm going to get, I mean, I can't imagine they're, they're cheap. So <laughs> Just pick them up like a pair of shoes, but they're there. They're, they're available, right? Yeah, so a new knee is probably around $45,000, and they only last for a couple of years, which is hard. And depending on your insurance, they don't necessarily see that you need a new one every couple of years because they wear out and stuff. But there are a lot of foundations and organizations out there that help fund getting different types of legs for people who want to do different activities. And yeah. So a new knee is around $45,000. So when you yes. say a new knee. So you would keep like your socket. So the part that would go around your residual limb, you would typically keep like your foot and your, what would be your leg, but you just switch out like the, what would be the knee joint, which could help you like do different things. So these prosthetics come in pieces. Yeah. Wow, I want to like hop on the internet right now <laughs> and check this out, right? Because like Yeah. So you prosthetics you can there's there's the foot, there's the main limb, there's like the and then there's the knee part. Mm-hmm. And the replacement knee part generally costs $45,000. Yes, depending on like I mean the more higher end like microprocessor knees are typically around there. Okay, that's incredible. Yeah. They have different parts for like everything. I know you can get specific feet that are that you can like angle if you want to wear high heels or I know there was a lady Amy Purdy who's bilateral below the knee amputee who's on Dancing with the Stars and she got feet that were on like her tippy toes so she could do like ballet and contemporary dance while staying like on her toes. So there's something for everything. So that brings me to a question that I'm really curious about. And I also want to be sensitive to the topic. So please only answer as much as you care to. But it's really striking me. Like you were a pre-professional dancer since you were three. And now that's off the list. Like how, may I ask how you're doing with that? I mean, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. (laughs) It was definitely a change. I think 
going through chemo, I was just so out of it all the time. And, you know, it was right during the pandemic. So everyone who was dancing in college left, went home. So I didn't feel too alone with mm-hmm. not dancing. I think as I'm like recovering and learning how to walk again, I do miss dancing. It was never my goal. I mean, I always wanted to be a professional ballerina, but it was yeah. it was never something I was really going to go for. I always wanted to teach ballet and I have taught dance during my junior and senior year in high school. And I think I can still do that just as well now. Yeah. And I can still get back into dancing, just doing it a little bit differently. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So it sounds like you're still getting acclimated to this new structure, yeah. this new way of operating. There's a lot of like pain and like weird areas that mean different things with your prosthetic and that you have like too much space in one part and like your knee isn't rotated enough. So it's a lot of relearning how to do pretty much everything. Are you working with a physical therapist or is it a prosthesis like specifically like that's their whole gig and they're the ones you want to go to period yeah so when I was inpatient at the hospital I spent a lot of time just in a hospital room I worked with a physical therapist through the hospital and then I finished chemo September 21st and then I worked with a home physical therapist and I just moved to Rochester (laughs) to be closer to my hospital for immunotherapy. And so now I work with like specialized prosthetic physical therapists, so. So you moved to Rochester to make it easier so you wouldn't have to keep driving. Yeah, just during the winter with the snow. Yeah, sure. And is it your right or left leg? It is my left leg. So if it was your right leg, have to relearn how to drive. <laughs> yeah, and how would yeah. that work? I don't know too much about that. I know that people can relearn how to drive. They can have special like devices put in their car. I mean, I know osteosarcoma also shows up in your arms, so you can have your arms amputated, so they can have special like, steering wheels and stuff, but I was very lucky to have it be my left leg, so I still have my right leg to drive with. Kara, I find this fascinating. It's, it's Right now, as I speak with you, it's this uh, combination of fascination with the alteration of your body and the incredible technology mm-hmm. and scientific understanding to be able to make you, you know, function with the new prosthetic as well as possible. And then the other side of it, which is the bottom half of your leg is gone. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you about that? Is that okay? Yeah. Did, like, did you say goodbye to your leg? Yeah. <laughs> I made my grandma make me like a cake that had like a leg on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I was, I was definitely done with it. I mean, I, I was so swollen from fluids on chemo and mm. just... My leg didn't look the greatest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, definitely before my amputation, I lost a lot of weight too. So it made my tumor so much more prominent. Mm. So I think I was ready, definitely ready to like be healthier. And I thought of it as like my last day with cancer before my 
which I hope is still true and will always be true. But yeah, yeah, I see. So it got to a point that you wanted it gone. Yeah. And losing weight resulted in the tumor becoming more prominent. Uh, how, how did that feel mentally, emotionally? Yeah, I think I was just so out of it all the time on chemo. So, okay. you know, couldn't really move much. I was in bed all the time. But looking back on the pictures I have, I just I didn't look healthy. And it's kind of sad to look at just me struggling. Mm-hmm. But I'm so lucky for steroids that they made me eat so much. And I was able to like gain my weight back and be healthier. So you were in bed for that whole time period from once chemo started. Yeah. It's, you were that out of it. That chemo did the same thing to me. I've met folks who are on the same chemo as I was, and they're going to work. Yeah. I was on that chemo, Kara. <laughs> I was laid out. I have a very sensitive system, and my body was like, um, no. Like, exercise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when I walk from the couch to the bathroom. Yeah. That's, that's about it. And that was about a 10-foot walk. It was uh, really hard. And yeah, you, okay, because you just mentioned the, the prominence of the tumor. I had, the first time I had stage two rectal cancer. And so every time, you know, I'd go to the bathroom, it's like this tumor is just getting irritated. And it got me like way too acquainted with the tumor. You know what I mean? It was like, mm-hmm. I wished at times that I couldn't feel it. I couldn't, I didn't want to be aware of it. I wanted to know it was there and not see it. And you're talking about, you know, seeing your tumor like, yeah like there's often that response like just ew like you're not welcome here like get that off of me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds almost like a good thing in that regard that you were so out of it you're just like no nope, i didn't even think about that <laughs> i was too busy yeah. feeling miserable from chemo what was uh what was the uh what were the side effects like from the chemotherapy oh, gosh. the pre like everything <laughs> You know, blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, a lot of nausea. It's like one of my biggest fears to throw up. And this is like the hardest chemo regimen you could give to a pediatric cancer child. But I took every single nausea medicine possible, so I never threw up during treatment. (laughs) But I slept through pretty much everything and, you know, nosebleeds and like bruises and, of course, hair loss. Yeah, pretty much everything. Mm. So it sounds like the chemo was brutal. Yeah. Like it was brutal. Like it was just endless side effects. And fortunately, you didn't throw up. I also did not throw up. And I'm so grateful for that between the steroids and the, uh, you know, the pre-meds and then the meds that would follow. One of the things that kept me from feeling nauseous was eating. Mm-hmm. It's like I gained weight when I was doing chemo, <laughs> stuffing myself. Yeah. Mm, man, oh man. So did you get radiation? I didn't. Good. Luckily enough, I followed like a typical, it's called like MAP protocol for osteosarcoma patients. And then if you relapse, there's two other different chemo drugs that you can take. And then everything else is pretty much experimental. And is osteosarcoma common, um, a common cancer, common among the cancers? It is not. It is, it is 
considered a pediatric cancer. It's typically ages like nine to 13, I think. Oh, that's what you said in the beginning. It's a rare pediatric bone cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So like 1% of childhood cancers is osteosarcoma. I mean, speaking, it is rare, but there are still a lot of cases each year because I think rare is kind of a questionable term <laughs> within cancer because, I mean, cancer is rare, but it's also not. Right. Like there's cancer is not rare at all. And mm -hmm. there are some cancers that are. Yeah. Like I was diagnosed with rectal cancer. It's like, eh, that's not rare. I was 36 years old, a month away from 37. That's relatively rare. Yeah. They did not expect, you know, to find that with me. My doc, doc kept telling me that he found hemorrhoids because mm -hmm. I was passing blood. And then after six months of him telling me that like four times, I was like, okay, I'm going to a specialist because if I got hemorrhoids, I got a major hemorrhoid problem. Yeah. <laughs> like something fishy is happening there. So, mm, so your wonderful grandmother make you a cake with a leg <laughs> on it? <laughs> I did. <laughs> And it was just a cake and then she added a leg or it was like yeah. a <laughs> She like put icing in the shape of a leg. <laughs> oh, like image on the cake. Yeah. And we are celebrating this wonderful 18 year life of your leg mm -hmm. and, and now sending it on its way. Yeah. To say goodbye. Mm. Mm. So I imagine when you, well, gosh, I don't imagine. Let me ask. So when you woke up, what was more present? I know that, you know, coming out of surgery for me anyway, it was, took a while. To, but once you've had your, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Your um, <laughs> faculties <Surgery>. back? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> yeah. Like, what was more present for you? The relief of having it gone or the fact that it was gone? Yeah. So it was like a six-hour surgery, which for osteosarcoma is on the shorter end of surgeries, I know. Okay. Most people who receive like limb salvage, it can be anywhere from like 10 hours on. But yeah, I woke up and I was pretty much with it. I think the days leading up to my surgery, I was the thing I was most scared about is how I would feel when I woke up. Yeah. Just looking down, not seeing my leg. And yeah. from what I remember, it didn't even seem different. I had really good pain control. I had an epidural in for a few days. So. Those are great. I, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't really feel much while I was on like meds. You know, I had my mom there the whole time and she surprised me with having people like from everywhere send in cards. So like right oh. after I woke up and I was back in my room, we opened up cards and we just read them and then spent the whole night talking and it was probably as peaceful as it could be. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah going through something that difficult and not just knowing you're cared for, but feeling it mm -hmm. just being present, all that love and support yeah. and uh, feeling surrounded by your community. Yeah. And for folks who are listening, an epidural is a form of pain management, right? It goes through the spine and uh, it's common for women who are giving birth they also use it in surgeries to just like, you know, have you feel no pain from like, or far less pain uh, mm -hmm. from the surgery. It's wonderful pain relief. Yeah. 
how soon did they have you moving around after your surgery? Like the next day. <laughs> it was definitely not like a mood booster. You know? <laughs> I was just like the combinations of like the drugs and like being tired and sometimes in pain, like PT wasn't really my friend when I was in the hospital, but I'm glad that they pushed me. It was a lot of learning how to like sit at the end of the bed and like move myself onto the commode, which is just like a bedside toilet and doing things that I didn't really want to do and changing my dressing, which wasn't fun, but. No, why was it not fun? It just hurt. (laughs) I didn't want to see my scar that, I mean, just Mm -hmm. kind of like weak stomach, (laughs) but yeah, I had it like really wrapped up and I had drains in and then they had to pull the drains out and put on like a sock, which was really uncomfortable, but yeah. (laughs) No, those drains, Um, I hate. I know they're awesome, but they're not. (laughs) No, like my doc took out my drains. This was after my first surgery in 2008, after the epidural was removed. Mm -hmm. And when the resident took the stitchings out and then pulled it out, you know, the skin grows very quickly back into the drain. Mm -hmm. So he pulled it out and I just looked at him. I said, you don't have any friends, do you? (laughs) And he just uh, shook his head and said, nope. (laughs) I put it all on him I was like I was exhausted from the surgery I was exhausted from having cancer I was in pain and then he pulls this thing out and pain just like shoots through me like I have not felt before yeah and and then I said to my doc like couldn't you have taken that out while the epidural was still in and he goes I mean he's the sweetest guy in the world I love him and he goes ooh that's a good idea (laughs) (laughs) like what so at least I provided something for every patient following me. Like, yeah. yeah. In, in, the, in the order of uh, operations, we're going to uh, take out the drain after the epidural. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, you just you kind of didn't want to deal with it. It kind of made you queasy. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I still struggle with is, like, there was a lot of, phantom limb pain and one of the best ways to like get rid of it is to touch the end of your residual limb which I mean still I mean I can do it pretty well now but still even touching it it's just it feels wrong (laughs) like it feels like my limb just shouldn't end there and you know the doctors and my surgeon and everyone just kept telling me just keep tapping it lightly and touching it and I was just didn't want to do it (laughs) Kara that's so enlightening listening to you say I don't want to touch it and when I do it feels like I shouldn't be able to to touch it it doesn't feel right yeah I had the colostomy surgery and so it was in a podcast interview where I realized I could finally put words to what I was thinking. And I'm not saying that you're thinking this, but like, mm-hmm. I didn't want this colostomy. Like I didn't want to be in my body. It's like, I couldn't make it go away. It was like this, it's my, my, my large intestine exits my abdomen and you can see it. It mm-hmm. looks like the red inside your mouth and it feels like, uh, you know, your che- if you put your finger in your cheek, 
in your mouth. That's what it feels like. And I you just read that on someone's Instagram, this guy who had, uh, I think he has uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And I started following him on Instagram because he posts a lot about having a colostomy. And the little part of intestine that pokes out is called the stoma. And he has the courage to take a picture of it and show the world. Like I've always been kind of grossed out by it. And I don't want to show people because it kind of grosses me out. And uh, I'm comfortable with it now. And then I see him post this, and he's the one who described it as it feeling like if you touch the inside of your mouth. And I went, oh, my gosh, like, that's it. It's so foreign, Kara. It's so weird. And I can only imagine what it's like for you. It's like, no, I kind of still don't want to touch it. It's just so, okay, I get that it'll take away the phantom limb pain, and I don't want pain. So I'm going to take it away. But, like, I shouldn't be able to put my finger there. Yeah, That's just odd. Yeah, I think that you know, everyone warned me and I knew about phantom limb pain and I kind of thought it was more of a mental thing, which in a way it is, but I also didn't know how like real it is that the nerves that I had all the way down my leg to my foot are still in my body. They're just kind of where my hamstring is. So they are like trying to grow back together. And when they do that, they're like firing neurons all the time. And so I still feel like I still feel constantly like my foot is there and it feels like my leg is there. And I know people can feel different things. Like, I mean, in the beginning, my phantom pain was so bad and I was on many different medications for it. And it felt like someone was like scraping me with a knife and then sometimes it was really hot and sometimes it was really cold and like someone was twisting my leg and I still get like random, like it feels like electrocution on my leg. But I mean, what I feel now is mainly just my foot is there. It just feels like my leg is constantly at a 90 degree angle. I mean, I know some people feel that their leg is like on the right side of their body or like above their head or something. So for real, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely really weird. So that is, sounds funny. Yeah. It sounds like it could also be maddening. Yeah, it was, it was really frustrating in the beginning. I didn't sleep. I couldn't sit still. I was like trying to do everything. There's like mirror therapy where you put a mirror on like in the middle of your body. So it mirrors your normal leg. I used ice packs just to like try to distract myself from the pain. There's Mm -hmm. medication. Is this pain only temporary? For some people, they never experience the pain. For some people, they have it their whole life. And for me, luckily, I was on meds that took it down for a while. I recently got off those meds and I haven't experienced much pain at all, mainly more just phantom symptoms, which just feels like sometimes my foot is itchy and I just kind of have to ignore it. Hmm. <laughs> For a little comic relief, and this is not a joke, I'm going to tell you the truth, like, I get <laughs> phantom gas where like, I'll feel like you, know, you have to you know, adjust the way you're sitting because your body is about to pass gas, and I'll feel that sensation. And early on, the earlier years, it would happen. I'd go to adjust my body. It's like, yeah, that's not going to happen, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's Occasionally, I'll still feel it, and people have theories as to why. I mean, it's not painful, so I don't want to make light of what you and other folks, especially the folks who have constant pain all the time, like. but it's. I think it's one of the funnier phantom uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sensations in the world, phantom gas. Uh, 
But you said the nerves are still in your leg, like they, they yeah. So, so they, they brought them back up and put them inside the your 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 thigh. Yeah. So I'm not hundred percent on everything, but I know sure. that a lot of my nerves are still. They try to. I know they try to typically like tuck them under the hamstring. I think I have what's called like a sciatic neuroma, so it's a bundle of nerves. So if I press on a certain part of my hamstring, like everything tingles, <laughs> but in a cool way, I guess so. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. So like, it's fine, but yeah, I know that they can, they try to, they try to save everything that they can save. And do you know what that provides? Like why not cut it right at the nerve? Maybe I, you don't know and that's fine. But Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm asking you like, you're now a, uh, prostheticist or however you said that i apologize <laughs> Prost- <laughs> yeah i'm doing the same thing you did before so <laughs> i don't expect you to know but i'm fascinated by the experiences that each of my guests have and i don't you know sometimes it can be a balance between not wanting to appear insensitive but being really curious like wow yeah. you know it's it's so foreign to to everyone who hasn't had a a, a limb removed and it's, it's like mm-hmm. there's so many questions that can go through the mind so they had you up the day after they had me up the day after too for me they had me up the day after because they don't want me to have blood clots Mm -hmm. and the body seems to heal more quickly Mm -hmm. when we are up and moving around and the same for you yeah and every one of us is like even if they told you like like you're like whoa i'm gonna be walking (laughs) tomorrow like didn't i just have major surgery yes you did what Okay, but I don't feel like I should be walking. Like, maybe I'm, like, one of the exceptions I shouldn't be walking. Like, no, <laughs> you're not an exception. We're going to have you walk. Yeah. And, oh, and I don't know about you, but for me, like, I'm very uh, competitive in, like, I'm not an athlete, but, you know, like, what, snowboarding, skateboarding, rock climbing, where, you know, there was a bit of a competitive vibe, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm competitive with myself. So, like, when they told me I had to walk, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. If I need to walk this far, well, I'm going to walk that far. I need to walk that far, I'm going to walk even further, which didn't always work out, you know, because <laughs> a lot of people don't know, like, you know, when you have a major surgery, when your body says it's time to rest, there's no coffee that's going to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> there's no Red Bull. There's no energy drink that's going to, you know, that's, that's going to fix that. It's, uh, you go to sleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Body's like, hi, I'm going to repair now, so... You're going to sleep. I've worked through, or however that works. Yeah, so they had you walking around. And then how many days were you in the hospital after surgery? Oh, gosh. Maybe like a week or two. I had like a couple weeks before off chemo just to like bump up on protein and get stronger before surgery. And then a couple weeks after, and then I went straight back into chemo. Okay, so a couple weeks in the hospital, then a couple weeks out. So about... A month, yeah, because they want the body to heal itself. And when the body is healing, that is rapid cell production. And mm-hmm. cancer growth is also rapid cell production, so they don't want to start the chemo until the body has repaired itself. Yeah, And it's fascinating that in that short amount of time, the body is repaired enough that the rest is just, I mean, I don't know, the rest is just what casual 
healing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not rapid. And so they started you on chemo. And I think you said six months. Mm -hmm. you, did, you did six months of chemo after surgery. Yeah. And was it the same ass kicking that you got from? Yep. <laughs> six months twice as long. Yep. <laughs> and was it the same symptoms? Pretty much. I don't think anything really changed. <laughs> so you just got your ass kicked for six months. Yeah. It's really hard, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like it's really hard. Like were you in bed the whole time or on the couch? I was in the hospital the whole time. So I was no. on. Oh, shoot. Um, you were in the hospital for six months. I would like have like, so I took doxorubicin and cisplatin were my two chemo drugs that were paired together. And then I had another chemo drug called methotrexate. It was high dose, high dose methotrexate. So like doxorubicin and cisplatin would be like five days in the hospital. Then I'd go home for two weeks, except usually on the second week, I was neutropenic, so I'd have a fever, and then I'd go into the hospital again. What does that like mean? A, Tell everybody what neutropenic means. Yeah, so like your ANC, which is your immune system, for me it would be zero. I'm like completely wiped out, no immune system. So I would always get a fever, and it was considered a medical emergency because I had no immune system and because I had a port in, which is like a central line to your heart. So sometimes a fever is like a telltale sign that your port is infected or you have like a virus or something. So rushed into the hospital. I got fevers pretty much with every single chemo dose. I'd mm. spend a week, like my week that I was supposed to have off in the hospital, then maybe go back for a couple days. Then I'd get my methotrexate. That was kind of like, it was based off if I was clearing the chemo or not. So I had to meet like they would test my pee to see how much chemo was in it. And I took a long time to clear. So it would be numerous days in the hospital and then like a couple days home and then I'd do it all over again. So I was, I was in and out a lot. And which hospital did you do the chemotherapy? Where was it? Um, I was, I'm at Strom Memorial Hospital in Rochester and I live in Ithaca. So it was a two hour drive there and then a two hour drive back. <laughs> The first time, it's kind of unknown if you would get a fever or not, but if you do get a fever, you have like a two-hour window to get in the hospital before you can go septic. So <laughs> for the first fever, I was at home, so I went to a local hospital, then they started me on the meds that they need to be started on, and I went, I took an ambulance to my normal hospital, and then every single one of those doses after that, I stayed local. We had a wonderful family friend who lived really close to the hospital who were away due to COVID. So they graciously gave us their house to use and to stay at. So Aww. when I got the fever, it was just like a 10 minute drive to the hospital and it was so helpful. Oh, I bet. Mm -hmm. As you speak of it, it sounds like Tell me if this is accurate. It sounds like your personality type is one where you're like, well, I gotta, I'm going to do what I got to do. I try. Because <laughs> it just There's, sounds really hard. Yeah. I mean, every single fever, I would just like kind of lose it and I'd be so scared. And okay. there were just a couple times where like I had complications with my port and my mom was like, yep, you need to go to the hospital. And I was like, oh my God. And 
we had like a stroke scare. I had a reaction to one of my chemo drugs. So we took an ambulance to the hospital and each time it was kind of like, it's going to happen, but it was definitely still really scary. So it's scary. So you get the fever and like, I don't want to go septically. Tell everyone what your knowledge of going septic means. Yeah. So basically for various reasons, you can go septic and that can end up in different ways. I know that you can have like different symptoms and I know that people can even go septic just from like getting an infection on a cut. You can go septic from having COVID. I know there was a lady who went septic while she had COVID and she lost all four limbs. So it can present itself in different ways. And it's definitely one of the scariest things that I mean, I think that you can have happened to you in life. What, what is it? What's happening in the body? What does go septic mean? Yeah. So I'm not completely sure, but I think your body just shuts down and there is somewhere in you a virus or a sickness that is attacking your system and you can, you can die. You can, ha I mean, have different symptoms. You can have high heart rates. You can have like really high, really low blood pressure. Okay, yeah, I'm looking it up right now, and sepsis is a life-threatening condition in which the body is fighting a severe infection that has spread via the bloodstream. If the mm -hmm. patient becomes septic, they will likely have, likely have low blood pressure, leading to poor circulation and lack of blood perfusion of the vital tissues and organs. So what you're saying is there was a woman who went septic from COVID, yeah, with COVID, and had all four limbs removed. Like, okay. Yeah. Like, I think that's why sepsis scares me so much even more now because like I know if I got sepsis like I could have another amputation I mean and that would be a better case of it too is still saving my life but losing another limb yeah and you're like no thank you <laughs> so it was scary when you'd get a fever yeah. The clock starts ticking mm -hmm. and you've got to get medication and you've got yeah. to rely on human beings to do their job and not screw it up. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. You really went through a lot. Yeah. And what is your current treatment? What did you say you're doing right now? Which part was it? Yeah, I'm doing immunotherapy. So it's called nifamertide. It is not FDA approved in the US, although it is in Europe. So that's where we get it from. <laughs> it is basically just an hour infusion that hopefully its job is to prevent osteosarcoma from spreading to the lungs in the future. So anything that I currently have, it's not attacking, but to prevent it in the future. It doesn't give me terrible side effects. I get to grow hair on it, which is fun. <laughs> it's which a lot fun. easier than chemo. <laughs> it's definitely a lot easier than chemo. So it's it's kind of lengthy. It's twice a week for 24 or twice a week for 12 weeks. And then once a week for 24 weeks. So like eight months total. But it's definitely worth it in my opinion. Yeah, sure. And so it can be used by... An oncologist in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It just cannot be produced in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, it's like 
not currently one of like the FDA approved medications, although I think it should be (laughs) because there's a lot of good evidence behind it. And it's kind of a lengthy process to get your oncologist to get it, but it's just paperwork and there's like step to step guides on how to do it online. So I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah, indeed. So I'm curious, there's no getting around it. Like, you know, you've been through a incredibly difficult oncology treatment. You've, you know, that your chemotherapy, brutal and scary. You've had the amputation of the lower part of your leg. Now you have the prosthetic. What do you want to share with your fellow survivors? Other young people get diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Yeah, I think something that really helped me through treatment is my mom would always tell me, like, take it one day at a time. And when that's too much, take it an hour at a time. I think I dealt with a lot of anxiety just with thinking about the future and everything. And one of the best ways to help that is just focusing on now and focusing on getting through what you're getting through. And I think that helps in the long run. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. There were days where I would say, okay, what do I have to give up today to get through this day? Mm -hmm. And it could be the hour, the moment, you know, of just like just getting to a certain point. Because if you worry about your future and how it's all going to go, like the imagination in that regard is not your friend. Yeah. Imagination will take you for a ride. Bring yourself back to today, right now. What am I dealing with? What do I have to get through? Mm-hmm. And that that worked for you. Yeah. So you finished, when did you finish the six-month chemo? Was that like in the fall? Yeah. September 21st was my last chemo infusion. So. Mm. And then when did you begin immunotherapy? Well, I finished, my last chemotherapy was methotrexate, which I had gotten a million times before. But for some reason, I had a reaction to the chemo. They thought I was having a stroke. So I ended up in the ICU for a couple of days. And after that, I got my prosthetic in October, like the end of October. And then I started immunotherapy shortly after that. Yeah, so I should be done like in August. So they thought you had a stroke. Yeah, I was sitting on the couch writing an email and all of a sudden like my typing was just gibberish and it was so weird. And I was like, mom, why can't I type? Like, this is so weird. And then my PT came over and I'm like, I don't feel good. So my mom came and sat with me in the room. He was just filling out um, paperwork. I tried to say something and it just came out as gibberish. My mom's like, what? So she's like, look at me and say, I love you, mom. And I couldn't do it. And I couldn't speak. And I completely lost my ability to speak. And so called an ambulance that's not terrifying. <laughs> it was it was really weird because I was so calm, like inside, because I knew I could understand everything my mom was saying. Okay. I could understand what I wanted to say back. I just couldn't say it. And I mean, something in me just felt, it felt like I was okay. It got more frustrating as time went on that I couldn't like express myself, okay. but I kind of just felt like I needed to stay silent. So I did. They 
started me on an anti-stroke drug once I got to the hospital. And then once we talked to multiple different doctors, they figured out I wasn't having a stroke. So they had to get me off that medicine because if you take that medicine, you're not having a stroke, you can have a brain bleed. So I went to a different, I mean, I went to my normal hospital. I went to the trauma ICU or trauma emergency room. I was there for hours. I ha- I couldn't do like basic functions like following a finger or someone would hold like a picture of like an apple in front of me and say, what is this? And I couldn't say what it was, but I knew in my head what it was. And then waited I did some brain MRIs brain CTs and then like around four in the morning I got my full speech back and everything and I was myself and meds didn't fix that it just came back on its own and spent the night in the ICU and then was transferred back to my normal unit just for watch and you know the meds that was supposed to reverse my stroke medication was just cough syrup. So I took cough syrup for a week Hmm. and I was completely back to normal. It was really scary, but luckily had like not a big impact. And then, you know, they hadn't seen it before. I mean, maybe they'd seen it once, but a kid had the same reaction on my unit a couple days later and they knew exactly what to do for him because of me. So Mm. it was definitely weird. So you were calm at home yeah but then you say it was scary so did there come a point where it got scary and i'm asking because i'm the one who said oh that sounds terrifying and i generally do my best to not uh add my emotion to your experience and i'm clearly getting emotionally charged you know by your experience because it's it's really powerful yeah so i apologize for putting in what i was thinking but so there was a transition time yeah from like okay i'm okay with this and i'm calm i can think clearly they just can't understand me but then it got scary yeah i think you know for my mom of course it was like Mm. one of the most scariest experiences because you know i mean she still talks about it and she said like i never thought i'd be able to hear you speak again or i never thought like she thought I was gone, you know, like my like spirit and whatever. And I knew myself that I was still there. I could hear everything everyone was saying to me. I could understand them. I understood what I wanted to say. I just couldn't express it, you know? And I think, I mean, I can't speak for stroke survivors, but I feel like I could feel for like a minute how they felt just the frustration of, I can't even say like a word. You know, the word I could say was, I'm sorry. And I just kept saying, I'm sorry all over because (laughs) it's the only way I could like express myself. But yeah, I like once it started to come back, it was less scary. But I think like frustration, I felt the most just, you know, everyone was like, ooh, like she can't speak. She can't do this. But I knew I could. I just for some reason it wasn't working. And your mom is wondering if she's lost you, if you're not going to be there. Yeah. Woo. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And so that was a side effect of your treatment. Yeah, not typical, um, (laughs) for sure. It's kind of unknown why we kind of came to the conclusion that it was 
something wrong with the pharmacy making up that specific chemo as it happened to a kid that had gotten the same drug on my unit a few days later. So that's what our conclusion is. That happened like a couple of days later with someone on your mm -hmm. unit. Like, okay, hold on. If this is very, very rare and it's happened twice in a couple of days. Yeah. Hopefully they were able to put their finger on it and figure out what was going wrong. Because mm -hmm. human error is uh, common with humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now you have your immunotherapy. Yes. And that goes until August. Mm -hmm. And then what's the plan after that? And you're going to be right back in school. Yeah. Yeah. I took two classes last semester, which was nice because I was just finishing chemo and kind of getting my brain back together. And now I'm going back to being a full-time student after immunotherapy is done hopefully just scans all the time and trying to stay away from lung surgery might happen in the future. I mean, I'm still keeping my mind open to that just because I don't want to expect that it's not happening because a lot of osteosarcoma patients get lung surgery. Okay. So you don't want yourself like startled and shocked by it. So you're keeping it present. You're like, it is possible. I'm yeah. going to go through my treatment. I'm going to do what I have to do and it will go one way or it will go the other. Yeah. That sounds like a really healthy way to go through it because you can then, again, just be with what's so not be startled, not be surprised, not be really like not be hugely disappointed. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you try to say, I'm going to have this immunotherapy and I'm not going to have uh, any lung issues and we know, and then you get it. You're like, oh, but if you're like, you know, I don't know it might happen and I sure as hell don't want it, but I'm not going to fool myself into thinking it's not going to happen because it might. Yeah. All right. And so how is movement on the prosthetic? Like what's that what's that like? It's pretty it's pretty good. Physical therapy is really kicking my butt right now. It's a lot of, you know, like yeah, you're learning how to walk, but you're also learning how to like pick up objects and do stairs, which is really hard and is it? like walk up. Yeah, I mean that's another thing with the different type of legs is with a preparatory prosthetic, you do stairs like one at a time. And it kind of matters like which leg you put first. But with a microprosthony, you can do like one stair at a time, like normal stairs. So it's learning how to do that. You know, walking on snow and ice as the weather gets bad. <laughs> I mean, sneakers. <laughs> That's like the most grip that you can get. And do you use a cane or a crutch or anything just to keep your balance or a walking stick yeah i usually use like they're called like canadian crutches like the arm crutches how are you doing as far as walking around like say Pretty you get out of bed okay here's the thing you wake up you're like oh i gotta pee it's like you know it's like <laughs> we all do that pee dance and you're like well either do i put my prosthetic on or do i grab a couple crutches and just hop to the to the yeah that i usually have like a wheelchair with me that okay like in the morning, like before I'm showering or getting in and out of the shower, like I use the wheelchair and try to use it less, but for like things where I'm like, I don't feel like putting on my leg. <laughs> so you have the wheelchair for times when you don't want to bother putting the leg on. Is it comfortable? Say you're just at your desk or on the couch to just not have the prosthetic on and just relax without it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's probably... a lot more 
comfortable to me. <laughs> okay, and they probably want you to have it on for a certain number of hours during the day? Yeah, they typically, like, once you get your prosthetic, you do, like, one hour in the morning, one hour at night. Then it's two hours in the morning, two hours at night, and you just keep building oh, okay. up depending on what your body and your residual limb can handle. And where are you with that? I try to wear it, like, five or six hours a day. I'm still experiencing some pain and trying to work with my prosthetist on that. So trying to get into more of a routine. Yeah. And how often do you see your prosthetist? You know, like once every month, but make appointments based off of like, oh, this is really painful. I should go in and have him fix this, you know? So I actually get to see him tomorrow, which is exciting. <laughs> oh, I bet. And the PT, how often is that? How frequent is that? I'm doing PT once a week. It's probably going to be a little bit more frequent once I get the more advanced leg and I work on doing like more advanced movements and activities. Well, I'm excited for you when uh, you have the leg of your choice. And you said that you anticipate teaching dance again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping to. <laughs> Would there be a special leg for that? It's definitely something I need to like research more I know for below the knee amputees there are a lot of dancer below the knee amputees and they use like the running blade just because it like kind of bounces a little and they're able to move a little bit faster with it but I think I could find something yeah it's just wonderful that you'll be able to do that what's it called when a ballerina spins on her toe like a pirouette like their toe a pirouette. That's what I was thinking. I didn't want to get it wrong, though. Um, <laughs> so I just imagine like a certain kind of prosthetic, like, you know, designed. You could do this badass pirouette, like just smoke yeah. anyone around you, just spinning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could be fun. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. But that's down the road. Oh, wowee. Well, Kara, it's been really great speaking with you i so appreciate you being so open and honest about the whole experience yeah thank you for letting me share my story you're welcome bye-bye bye thank you so much for tuning in i truly hope this podcast was of value to you please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find but seriously the cancer podcast anywhere podcasts are made available to learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching please go to bertsholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of St. Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.